infected adult. If I can do it, you can do it. So, welcome. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Um, as Mike said, I'm a primary care uh, clinician educator at Beth Israel Deaconess uh, Medical Center in Boston. Um, I did ID training back uh, from 1981 to 1983, so it's actually been more than 20 years that I've been doing this work. But it was totally by coincidence that during that same period, the first cases of AIDS were described by the CDC. And so my career is uh, totally serendipitous, um, but that's the way it works sometimes. I have no relevant financial affiliations to disclose. So I'm going to cover four main areas uh, today. Uh, first is I'm going to just uh, touch briefly on the role of primary care in HIV management and give a bit of uh, the epidemiology that supports a very active primary care role and the importance of it. <clears throat> Second is to describe the general effects of aging uh, on HIV infection and talk about uh, medical comorbidities that you may be more likely to see in HIV-infected patients and may be seeing them at an earlier uh, chronologic age. Third is to uh, talk about some specific comorbidities, uh, particularly coronary artery disease and risk factors for coronary disease like hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, et cetera, which we certainly see in this patient population. I'll also touch on a couple of others such as cognitive impairment with aging, uh, malignancies, and uh, pulmonary diseases. And then lastly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on health maintenance because I think that's a talk unto itself, uh, but to just update you on uh, immunizations in the HIV-infected patients and then talk about other age and uh, sex-related uh, healthcare maintenance issues that need to be addressed in HIV-infected patients and how the HIV infection may uh, affect your decision when to order them and how frequently to get them. So you probably can't read this slide, but this uh, was something that uh, my best ideas come in the shower for some reason. Um, and uh, this was, uh, I was thinking about uh, what was in the Institute of Medicine report back about five years ago that suggested that we're not going to have enough people to take care of, uh, providers to take care of HIV-infected people in the coming years. And um, I tried to put it all together in my head to try to figure out why that was the case. And it's pretty obvious why it is. Um, there's an increased screening of the HIV-infected population, which we've gotten much better at doing. I think only about 13 or 14 percent of HIV-positive adults in the U.S. Uh, do not know their serostatus. There's certainly improved survival. Uh, this increases the number of patients. Almost all of them are going to be on antiretroviral therapy. And then you've got at the same time, because we're doing well in terms of managing their HIV and aging patient population, that are just going to develop age-related medical comorbidities. And all that results in a need for increased primary care services for this population. On the other side of the coin, um, what I would consider, uh, what I would call first-generation HIV providers, of which I'm a uh, proud to be a member, um, at some point we'll retire or we'll be carted off. Um, there's a decreased number of medical residents who are pursuing primary care, and that's not improved in the last few years in many places. And then there's really inadequate training of both medical students and medical residents in uh, HIV-related uh, issues, and that results in a decreased capacity for the provision of primary care. 
So we're at a crossroads, I think, in terms of whether there'll be enough skilled and interested providers to do this work. Um, I'm a perpetual optimist, and I think we'll find a way to do it. But I think the answer is really going to lie in people who do uh, outpatient general medicine rather than necessarily uh, rely on infectious disease providers to do this work in the future. Um, a couple of epidemiology slides. Uh, this first one uh, is uh, to show you that of the 30 to 50,000 new HIV cases in the U.S., and it varies from year to year a bit, a substantial minority are in patients age 50 years or older. So we don't do uh, screening as well in older patients because I guess we stop, we think that people are over the age of 50 stop having risk behaviors and they certainly don't have sex. But you can still see that uh, of those diagnosed at least in 2015 in the United States, there were about uh, six, 7,000 people who were aged uh, 50 or older with initial diagnosis of HIV infection. And how about uh, looking at the population as a whole, if there's 1.2 million people in the U.S. who are HIV infected, you can see uh, with the red bars that about 30% of them are age 50 or older. And again, this brings to mind that all of the stuff that people are at increased risk for as they age will become much more visible over time in the HIV-infected population. So what, are, what do I consider primary care responsibilities? Primary care is great because, in general, primary care is defined as anything specialists don't want to do. And it includes uh, any, of the, any or all of the following things. Um, HIV screening and prevention, antiretroviral therapy for those of us who have either had training or are so inclined, and work on medication adherence, making sure the patient's on appropriate prophylaxis for opportunistic infections, importantly, management of comorbid conditions, making sure their immunizations are up to date, and making sure that their healthcare maintenance issues are also up to date. Um, here's the care cascade from the uh, last couple of years in the United States. You can see that about 86% of people who are HIV positive know their diagnosis. The biggest fallout is engagement in care. We lose about half of the people between diagnosis and, and getting them in care. Uh, once we get them in care, we do a reasonably good job at prescribing antiretroviral therapy, and I would say a re reasonably good job at virally suppressing people. So the greatest amount of work is clearly between the diagnosis and engagement in medical care. And um, I agree with Carlos that a lot of us, certainly uh, here, according to him, but also throughout the country, there are a lot of social determinants that uh, cause that fall off. So let's talk about aging in general. And I think this is the first of two ARS questions. So which of the following statements about HIV-infected patients over the age of 50 is false? They present at an earlier stage of disease. They constitute 30% of HIV-infected patients. They are at increased risk for developing common so-called age-related comorbidities compared to the general population. And four, they are more adherent to medical therapy. Which of these four is false? see where we are. So 42% of you, 43% uh, of you, now that I'm saying this, and it's probably going to go up, um, 
uh, got the correct answer. They present at an earlier stage of disease. Actually, they present with more advanced HIV. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that there are missed opportunities for screening in this patient population. They do constitute about 30% of HIV-infected patients. They're clearly increased risk for comorbidities. And they do tend to be uh, more adherent with medical therapy. And I'm not sure if I kept that slide in here, but uh, older people tend to take medications more reliably in general than younger people. So this is a, a figure from up to date, which I, I kind of like, except I'm getting near the point where the guy falls into the water. Um, this is uh, normal aging and health. And you can see along the bottom is increasing age. And you can see going uh, di uh, diagonally up, our physiologic reserves already in use. As you get older, you tend to use more of your physiologic reserves. And the top part is physiologic reserves available. And you can see at a certain point, you don't have enough physiologic reserves. You get an acute insult, and then you fall into the ocean and die, I guess. Does <laughs> that cheer you up? OK. Um, and the way I would, the way this is useful to think, the reason is this is useful to think about is I think of HIV-infected patients, even those with well-suppressed viral loads, to have a higher level of physiologic reserves already in use. So the concern would be that if you don't tend to their other health issues, they may get to a point earlier in advancing age where they may have a precipitating event and have a worse outcome than people who are not HIV-infected. So I think it's, it's useful to some degree in thinking about aging and health. Um, what do we know about chronic complications by age and HIV status? There's been a bunch of studies looking at this. And um, I, I worked for a year at Up to Date, and they say always give the punchline first and then explain it afterwards. The punchline is, is that people who are HIV infected tend to get more medical comorbidities than people who are not. And they may tend to get them at a bit younger age, maybe five to 10 years earlier than people who are HIV uninfected. I'm going to show you, I think there are three studies here to go over briefly. Uh, this first one is an article back in 2011 in Clinical Infectious Disease. It was a retrospective analysis of outpatients from 2002 to 2009. They looked at a variety of uh, medical comorbidities that are listed. And they found some independent predictors of polypathology, uh, meaning multiple uh, non-HIV-related related comorbidities. And I'm going to show you the table from it and just explain it briefly if I can see it. There it is. Um, the left columns are cases. So these are people with HIV infection. And the right columns are controls. And then each of the columns in the four, four groups, excuse me, in the two groups, um, are decades of life. So it's less than 40, 41 to 50, et cetera, across the board. And what I want you to look at is look at the pattern. This is just pattern recognition, so it's something we're very good at in medicine. Look at the patterns that you see on the three bar, on the, look at the cases first, and look at the three left, left bars, and then look at the three right bars under controls. And the darker parts of each column represent more comorbid conditions. And what you can see is the patterns look virtually identical in terms of the proportion that have uh, numbers of medical comorbidities. And what you see here is matching of patients less than 40 with people who are HIV infected with patients who are 41 to 50 and are not infected, uh, 41 to 50 infected with 51 to 60 not infected, and so forth. And based upon this study, the proposal was that people with HIV infection develop age-related comorbidities about 10 years earlier than the general population. This is another study, also in clinical infectious disease, about three years later. 
um, shows uh, similar, uh, similar results. Um, here we can see uh, HIV infected is on the left, HIV uninfected on the right. You can see again with pattern recognition that it's offset by about five years. So people between the age of 45 and 50 look more like, uh, with HIV infection, look more like people between uh, 50 and 54 who are uninfected and so forth. So based upon these two studies, it does look like there's probably a five to 10 year differential in terms of when, when people are likely to develop non-HIV related, more age related medical comorbidities. This is a more recent, uh, excuse me, this is uh, also from the same article. Um, the red bars are HIV infected patients and the blue bars are uninfected patients. And you can see across the board for all of these medical comorbidities, the prevalence was higher if you were HIV infected and some of these reached statistical significance and some of them did not. Uh, in an article that was just uh, published recently in the Journal of Infectious Disease by Joel Gallant, um, he also looked at um, comorbidity trends in HIV infected patients and he compared um, I can read it, 2003, this is about uh, 15 years apart, the red bars being uh, 2003, I believe, and the, the other bars being 2013, I'm sorry, 10 years apart. Um, and what you see is that for, and these are A, B, and C are different types of uh, payers, <clears throat> um, commercial, um, Medicaid, and Medicare. And what you can see again is that um, in more recent years, we're seeing more medical comorbidities compared to, uh, to years uh, to, compared to 10 years prior. And what this likely reflects across the board is aging of the patient population. So with that in the background, the fact that HIV infected patients are more likely to develop non-HIV related medical comorbidities, and they may develop them at a, at a somewhat earlier stage in their life, I want to talk about some specific ones. And I have a few examples of, uh, of references, but this is the, the literature, it's certainly not exhaustive. So these are just meant to uh, exemplify certain points. Uh, we have another question though first. Um, HIV infection has been associated with the following increased risk percentage, percentage risk of acute myocardial infarction beyond that explained by traditional risk factors. Uh, I, I grant you that there are studies that show different results here. I'm looking for the, the acts or the average or the median value. 90%, 30%, 10% or 50%. Oh, sorry. Hit the slide. So those are the options, 90, 30, 10, or 50. This one I know. Thirty percent. Okay. Thirty percent is not is, is not bad, and it, it may be accurate. I'm not entirely sure. I'm going to show you one article that shows that there's about a fifty percent increase. There have been other studies that show even a higher percentage increase, but thirty is not a not not a bad answer. So a little background on HIV infection and coronary disease. The incidence of coronary disease is still relatively low in HIV infected patients, but it's clearly higher than uninfected populations that are matched for age and gender. Um, studies have been both shown preclinical and also clinical um, endpoints. Uh, so things like carotid intima media thickness, which is a preclinical marker of atherosclerosis, and also clinical endpoints like myocardial infarction are also incre are both increased. 
and the hypothesis has been uh, that HIV infection is associated with increased soluble and cell markers of inflammation, endothelial dysfunction, and altered coagulation, all of which have been known to predispose to coronary disease in other populations. Uh, what's still a bit of a puzzle is the degree to which HIV infection itself contributes to these and what, what's re, what, how antiretroviral therapy may play in and uh, how about traditional risk factors. Um, there's been some discussion already today about antiretroviral th drugs in general. Protease inhibitors should be avoided in patients with multiple risk factors for atherosclerosis or, or with diagnosed clinical atherosclerotic disease. Uh, the data regarding abacavir are still unclear. Um, that being said, discontinuation of antiretroviral therapy is generally not in the patient's best interest, regardless of whether they have diagnosed coronary disease. And the other thing to just keep in mind is that there's a high prevalence of traditional risk factors in this population. So sometimes we spend a little bit too much time trying to tweak which antiretroviral therapy drug we're, we're going to use and forget about their heavy cigarette smoking, which, which albeit is difficult to manage, certainly is going to uh, uh, be the thing that's uh, going to reduce their risk uh, most substantially. This is the study that I wanted to bring to your attention. This was uh, by Freiburg in, the, in JAMA Internal Medicine back about four or five years ago. And what they did was look at the rates of acute myocardial infarction by HIV status and age group. Uh, this is a case control trial, and these are decades of life. The top, the top uh, above the line are uninfected patients, and below the line are HIV-infected patients. And I want to bring your attention just to one of the rows down near the bottom. It says incident, incidence rate ratio. And basically what that is is the ratio of developing an MI uh, in that age group if you're HIV infected compared to being uninfected. And this study controlled for traditional risk factors for uh, coronary disease. And what you can see is that between the age of uh, 30 and 39, there was a 2.19 uh, was the incidence risk ratio. Uh, that includes one, so it was not statistically significant. But once you get between 40 and 49, 50 and 59, and 60 and 69, you can see that all of these were increased, 1.34, 1.80, and 1.53, and all of those were statistically significant. And if you take the average of those values, it's about 50% increase. So at least between the ages of 40 and 90, uh, there appears to be about a 50% increased risk of an acute myocardial infarction when uh, adjusting for traditional risk factors in the population compared to HIV uninfected patients. Now this leads to all sorts of problems because um, it brings to mind that the traditional risk calculators that we use in order to determine people's 10-year risk for myocardial infarction and their need for statin therapy may not be applicable to HIV-infected patients. And there are large studies ongoing right now uh, and a lot of thought, uh, careful thought, to try to figure out when we should be using statins in these populations and uh, what, whether we can actually calculate a, 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 an accurate uh, risk assessment for coronary disease. So I'm going to go through some of the risk factors for atherosclerosis now um, and talk to you uh, and focus mostly on what's different about them in HIV-infected patients. Hypertension is, I thought hypertension was easy until they made it more complicated. So most of you are aware that very recently uh, there were new guidelines published. They made national news. People are asking about it. 
for apparently 46% of the adult population is hypertensive now, up from 30%, even though their blood pressure readings didn't change. And um, it, it might be viewed, I think I was talking to someone, as a condition of life rather than a medical condition if half the population is affected by it. But there's now stage, both stage one, which we used to call prehypertension, and stage two, which we used to call hypertension. And um, there are varying recommendations uh, from different organizations about when you actually need to institute pharmacologic therapy. In older patients, there's also a lot of debate because not all patients the same chronologic age are in the same situation and are likely to benefit equally from antihypertensive therapy. Um, we do a minimal workup for secondary hypertension if people are diagnosed in, in their middle age years. This is true in both HIV-infected and uninfected patients. We use the same non-pharmacologic management recommendations and the same initial drug therapy recommendations, either a thiazide, an ACE inhibitor, or an, an ACE uh, angiotensin or receptor blocker, or calcium channel blocker. And uh, the important thing here is that there are really no important ART interactions for any of the commonly used drugs. So the biggest change here has been stage one and stage two hypertension as opposed to pre-hypertension pre and hypertension. How about diabetes? Uh, there's a lot of interaction between diabetes and HIV. Um, I put some, some articles here to uh, exemplify these points. Um, HIV infection probably increases the risk of diabetes to some degree, and that's based on uh, this article, which is back a year ago, and some other articles which suggest this. Um, the management and diagnosis are very similar in both populations. Um, not we, the hallmark of diabetic management, particularly type 2 diabetes, is non-pharmacologic management, particularly aimed at weight reduction, which will often improve or rectify glucose intolerance. Generally speaking, if patients do not have profound hyperglycemia, they're started on metformin and a sulfonylurea or low-dose insulin. Long-acting insulin can be added as a second agent. Um, it's important to remit, recall a couple of things about metformin. One is that the older nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor drugs cause lactic, can cause lactic acidemia, and so does metformin. Um, and the other one is dilutegravir uh, um, increases uh, the metformin area under the curve. So the recommendation is to start off slowly, and usually that's uh, 500 milligrams a day, and not to exceed 1,000 milligrams per day, where the normal upper limit dosing would be uh, 2.5 grams. Uh, the last point about diabetes and HIV is that they, not surprisingly, since both of them can cause nephrotoxicity, if pa patients have both conditions, they tend to have particularly detrimental effect on renal function. How about cigarette smoking? Um, it's well uh, described that HIV-infected patients are more likely to smoke and less likely to quit compared to the general population. This was based on primarily on an article in the Annals from a few years ago. Um, there's no evidence that a spe specific uh, approaches to smoking cessation work better or worse in HIV-infected patients. Uh, the drug options you're probably familiar with, they include uh, nicotine replacement, bupropion, and, uh, and Shantex, um, which can be used alone or in combination. Um, and none of these have important ART interactions. How about hyperlipidemia? We touched on this briefly. It's not entirely clear whether we should be using the same guidelines in HIV-infected as uninfected populations for starting statin drug therapy. We do know that dyslipidemia is more common in HIV-infected patients on antiretroviral therapy. Uh, it may be seen in, in combination with other features of uh, lipidystrophy. 
Um, HIV-infected patients should be evaluated and treated for dyslipidemia, at least these are the published recommendations in a fashion similar to seronegative persons. Um, protease inhibitors, particularly ritonavir, recall increased most statin levels. Um, simvastatin and lovastatin are contraindicated for uh, protease inhibitors and also cobisacet and uh, atorvastatin or rosuvastatin are usually used as alternatives. It is recommended because there still are drug-drug interactions that when you use statins in HIV-infected patients, you start off with a low dose. And unlike the general population where there's been a lot of debate and, and less likely a tendency to monitor liver function tests and CPK, uh, the recommendations in HIV-infected patients on uh, one or more of these drugs is to actually do that, looking for evidence of toxicity. I'm going to touch briefly on premature bone loss. Um, as the population age, particularly women, may be an increased risk for premature bone loss that may put them ultimately at risk for pathologic fractures. As a quick review, osteopenia is not really a medical diagnosis, it's a radiologic diagnosis. It means decreased bone mass compared to age and sex match controls, whereas osteoporosis is sufficient bone loss to predispose people to pathologic fractures. Usually these are compression fractures of the vertebrae, <clears throat> but they can also be forearm fractures or hip fractures. And there's a lot of things that contribute to premature bone loss in HIV-infected persons. HIV infection itself may play a role. Uh, TDF certainly does. Uh, some, there's some evidence that protease inhibitors may contribute to it. There's been a hypothesis generated that there's altered uh, vitamin D metabolism in HIV. And then lastly, uh, particularly for patients that are very drug experienced with older nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, it may be that low-grade lactic acidemia resulted in premature bone loss. Um, here's another situation where we, we kind of perseverate about the HIV contribution to it and we forget about all of the other risk factors that are known to contribute to premature bone loss. And so things like immobility, cigarette smoking, excessive alcohol use, chronic kidney disease, hypogonadism and hyperthyroidism, as well as steroid use, they all contribute. So some of these are amenable to intervention and some of them are not. <clears throat> the optimal use of bone densitometry in this population is not well known. Um, if you look at the um, HIV uh, Medical Association guidelines from a few years ago, they do recommend baseline um, bone densitometry in postmenopausal women, which is the same as in the uninfected population. But they also extend it to say to suggest getting one as a baseline in men uh, age 50 or older. Um, calcium and vitamin D should be given in high-risk patients. We should try to get them to exercise more and smoke less. And bisphosphonates can be used and should be used in appropriate clinical settings. This is one of many articles looking at osteo, uh, antiretroviral exposure history and risk of osteoporotic fractures. Um, this dates back about five years ago. It looked at TDF, back of ear containing regimens. Um, you can tell the dates of the patients because they included AZT and D4T, uh, non-nucleoside drugs, and protease inhibitors. Um, the one and the two indicate different multivariate analyses, and you can see that for all of the analyses for TDF and for two out of three of the analyses for protease inhibitors, there was an increased risk of osteoporotic fractures, but not for the other drugs that were examined. Malignancies, uh, there's been a lot of database comparison trying to figure out which malignancies HIV-infected patients are at increased risk for. Um, observational studies suggest that lung, hepatic, and anal cancers occur at a younger age in HIV-infected patients, and that would make 
some sense because cigarette smoking is more prevalent, chronic hepatitis is more prevalent, and HPV infection is more prevalent than the uninfected population. There's one study that I've mentioned here from Annals of Internal Medicine back about eight years ago that compared HIV and cancer registry databases. And in that, uh, looking at non-AIDS defining cancers, and in that uh, analysis, only lung and anal cancers were seen in AIDS patients at a younger age, uh, about four years earlier than in the uninfected population. Um, pulmonary diseases have also been examined in HIV, and this is a large Veterans Administration study looking at uh, 33,000 HIV-infected patients and 67,000 controls. You can only do that at the VA. Um, subjects were matched, um, and the incidence of four different conditions was higher in the HIV-infected group, a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and lung cancer, which fits because of the cigarette smoking prevalence. Pulmonary hypertension, which has been described for years and years in HIV infect infection, the exact uh, pathophysiology still not well understood. And lastly, pulmonary fibrosis, which may be the result of recurrent uh, pulmonary infections during their lifetime. How about cognitive dysfunction? We all lose a step or two as we get older, but uh, most people do not develop uh, dementia. Um, there are some studies, but they're mostly small studies looking at um, HIV infection and aging and cognitive dysfunction. Um, epidemiologic findings would suggest that increasing age is a risk factor for HIV-associated dementia. In one study uh, looking at 106 over the age of 50 versus 96 younger, there was a threefold higher risk of dementia on multivariate analysis. And the study was uh, adjusted for factors that might uh, be contributing to those differences. I'm going to end up talking briefly about health maintenance issues, and I'm just going to—I'm not going to talk uh, very much about vaccines. This is the um, CDC, excuse me, the uh, ACIP um, uh, schedule for vaccinations in HIV-infected adults, which is updated uh, within the past year. Um, two things to just bring your attention to, uh, which are changes from a couple of years ago. One is that meningococcal conjugate vaccine is now recommended. Uh, in all HIV-infected patients. Uh, I wouldn't say every clinician agrees with that, but th that is what the recommendation is currently. Um, the other thing is to talk about Shingrix, Shingrix, which is a silly name, but uh, is the new Zoster vaccine. Um, it's a recombinant vaccine. It's not a live attenuated vaccine. So in theory, it should be safe in immunocompromised patients. Um, the ACIP has not come out with uh, specific recommendations on Shingrix in HIV. Um, right, the, right now, the recommendations are really based on Zostrix, which is a live attenuated vaccine and is not considered the vaccine of choice, which is contraindicated in patients with a CD4 cell count less than 200, but can be used in patients with a higher CD4 cell count, although its efficacy has not been well established. Um, the FDA has approved both vaccines for use in adults over the age of 50 but some uh, organizations have recommended uh, that it, it, because the prevalence of uh, shingles increases with increasing age, have recommended waiting till the age of 60 to administer uh, the vaccine. So Shingrix is preferred over Zostrix, but should, never, but should not be used uh, right now until we have more data in patients with CD4 cell counts less than 200. Um, I'm going to finish up talking about a few screening uh, issues, and some of these have changed a bit over time, so just those of you who don't do a lot of primary care, just to be aware. Um, and these are all based on the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, recommendations, and when I use others, I'll mention them. 
For breast cancer, right now the recommendation is for biannual mammography every other year in women age 50 to 74. Uh, some women opt to get it annually, and that's okay. Um, and um, over the age of 75, we don't have data, and it should be individualized for younger ages depending upon their genetic risk for breast cancer. Cervical cancer, there's divergent recommendations. Uh, the traditional recommendations have been annual pap test in women after two, this is in HIV-infected patients, two normal paps documented with a role of HPV being unclear. I'll show you an algorithm in the next slide which uh, kind of spreads out the duration in people that uh, have had negative pap smears and negative HPV testing in the past. Colon cancer, some form of colon cancer screening every 10 years, preferably colonoscopy starting at age 50, but earlier and perhaps more often screening if there's a history of polyps or inflammatory bowel disease. Prostate cancer has changed. Um, we went from doing PSA testing and then having to live with the results with our patients when they came back falsely positive or falsely negative to uh, don't talk about it with anybody ever to uh, talk about it with males age 55 to 69 and in patients with a family history. And that's where we are right now. This is an algorithm for cervical cancer screening, which proposes actually spreading out the interval for uh, repeat cervical, can, uh, cervical pap testing, uh, and it's, it's divided into less than 30 and greater than 30 and whether you do HPV co-testing or not. Um, I think the bottom line here is we do not know the, uh, the uh, most proper approach to cervical cancer screening in this patient population, and it really does need to be individualized, but it tends to be uh, more regular and more intensive than in the uninfected population. Uh, and the other thing to bring to your mind about cancer screening is that uh, within the past two or three years, uh, the recommendation uh, has been made to do annual screening for lung cancer with low-dose computed tomography in adults who are age 55 to 80, who have a 30-pack year smoking history and currently smoke or have quit within the last 15 years. Um, so that's something that a lot of practices are just starting to implement now, but it's something to keep in mind. We used to tell people never to screen for, uh, for lung cancer, but um, although there is some debate about it, this is what's recommended currently. ID screening is mostly screened for STDs in people that are at ongoing risk and screened for tuberculosis on, on uh, some regular basis in people that are at ongoing risk. And then lastly, for cardiovascular disease, regular blood pressure checks, which isn't usually a problem because people somehow or another get their blood pressure checked every time they come into any healthcare facility for any reason. Um, abdominal aortic aneurysm, one-time screening is recommended in men ages 65 to 75 who have ever smoked. And then the other question that comes up is aspirin prophylaxis. Aspirin has been shown to be protective against cardiovascular disease and also colon cancer. Um, and the recommendation currently is for adults age 50 to 69 who have a 10% or greater 10-year CVD risk by using one of the standard risk calculators are not at increased risk for bleeding and have a life expectancy of at least 10 years should certainly be offered uh, aspirin prophylaxis, low dose. So I'm going to summarize now and I'd be happy to answer questions that people have. There's an increased need for primary care services for HIV patients. At the same time, there's a potentially decreased capacity to provide them. Uh, both generalist and ID practitioners have important contributions to make. HIV-infected patients may develop age-related diseases at younger chronologic ages and they may be more prevalent. 
The incidence of coronary disease is higher than that in seronegative patients matched for age and gender. CAD risk calculator results need to be interpreted in the context of the increased risk conferred by HIV infection by itself. Exactly how to adjust that is not known at this point. HIV infection and its treatment and comorbidities are associated with premature bone loss. Lung, hepatic, and anal cancers may occur at a younger age in this population. And then lastly, appropriate immunizations and age and sex-related health maintenance issues should be routinely addressed as part of comprehensive care. Thanks very much. I went a little bit over, but happy to answer questions. Thanks, <clears throat> Thanks Howard. Um, I have a couple of just miscellaneous things that I keep wondering about. One is vitamin D. So at least in my experience, anybody who's got a chronic infection or a chronic disease, their vitamin D is almost always low. And so and sometimes really low. And so you start, you start treatment replacement at whatever, 40,000 units, whatever the thing is, and then you repeat it and it hadn't budged much. So what's the end point with that? Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of debate about vitamin D screening in general, and also whether we should be monitoring uh, vitamin D levels in people that we replete. I can tell you that the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency, I don't know what it is in Atlanta, it's probably lower than it is in Boston, but the prevalence in the Northeast and other places that don't get a lot of sunlight, especially during the winter, is quite high. It's at least 130%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think people, I don't think we know the absolute right answer. I think it's perfectly appropriate to recommend a vitamin D supplement, a standard one, 1,000 units a day um, for patients and not bother checking levels, but other people approach it differently. Okay. Here's one on, how often do you check uh, liver enzyme tests or CPK in people on statins? Yeah, so th this has changed. When, when, when statins first came on the scene, uh, the recommendation was to check LFTs and CPK whenever you check their lipids. Two things have changed. One is that for most patients, probably routine tests, and that not at increased risk for either hepatotoxicity or for uh, muscle toxicity, there's probably no reason to be checking LFTs and CPK. The other thing which is actually not recommended to do routinely in most patients is to recheck lipid levels. So for the most part, you can start, these are patients without any risk factors and they're not HIV infected and they're not on protease inhibitors, et cetera. You can probably just start the statin and only get labs if patients are symptomatic. In HIV, I think there's a compelling reason, both because of the prevalence of underlying liver disease and also because there may be an increased risk for hepatotoxicity based upon other drugs to check them regularly and also start at the lower level of the statin dose range rather than the higher, which a lot of cardiologists do. Okay. What about this um, denosumab or uh, Prolia, the four? Uh, osteoporosis. Do you know much about? I don't that? have. I don't have much experience with it, uh, so I can't really comment on okay. it. Okay. Frequency of anal pap smears. Um, the frequency of anal pap smears. So it could be anywhere from zero, um, depending upon your belief system, uh, or it can be uh, more regularly. And I would say, you know, it's interesting because uh, Fenway Health, which is about a half a mile down the road in, in Boston, and primarily uh, has uh, LGBT population. That's basically part of their protocol. I purposely didn't mention it um, because there's a lot of, I mean, there's no, there's no standardized recommendations about anal pap frequency in essentially any population. I think if you're going to do them, they should probably be done on some regular basis, but you should also have a system in place so you can interpret and have a standardized way to act upon the test results. Right. I think that it, it all depends on your local scene, and that's going to come up again and again. Yeah, question from the floor. 
So I just kind of want to know how you operationalize your practice. So right now I see HIV patients. I'm a family nurse practitioner who's not done family medicine for 20 years. I've only done HIV or oncology. Um, I don't see how I could add in all this other stuff and still see my patients. When I go to my family doctor, I get to go for one thing, and if I have something else, I have to go back to him for that other thing. So, you know, we're looking at hiring somebody to do primary care. I'm sure it's best practice for you to do everything for your patients, but how do you fit that in your day? Well, one thing you can do is when you go to your doc is go get the visit, check out, then check back in and keep doing that until... Uh, <laughs> Well, unfortunately, the copay situation won't work there. Well, one thing I do is I drink a lot of coffee. And, um, no, I, I think there's, there's a couple of questions you're asking. One, one may be about knowledge base and what you're comfortable taking care of, but the other may be about do you have enough time to actually take care of this. So people that do general outpatient medicine are used to dealing with patients with multiple active medical issues, some acute, some chronic. And the ways to deal with it are, number one, to hopefully have some people that you can work with that you can share the wealth with. We have nurse practitioners in our practice, and for most, most, not all, but most of my HIV patients and other patients with chronic medical conditions, I alternate visits with a nurse practitioner. The other thing is obviously just prioritizing each visit what, what you're going to tackle on that given day. You don't have an infinite amount of time to deal with 20 medical issues at each visit. Right. Um, do you consider HIV itself a cardiac risk factor? Yes, I do. How about hepatitis C, um, untreated? Uh, probably, but I, I don't know the literature as well on hepatitis C. We'll find C. that in the next talk. Um, I do consider it. I, I think the thing that's um, the thing that's concerning right, right now or frustrating for me is I don't know exactly how to quantify it. And I'd love to have um, a reliable risk calculator for HIV-infected people. Yeah, it's going to be a while. Um, how about meningococcal vaccine? Yeah, so meningococcal, meningococcal uh, conjugate vaccine is now recommended. Um, I, you know, there's, uh, there's been a bit of debate, and it's based on predominantly some outbreaks that have occurred in different cities. Um, whether whether the, the recommendation is too broad um, remains to be seen, but currently that's what's recommended. I, it's slowly being implemented in our practice, but I can't say it's, it's been the highest priority. We have not had meningococcal cases. Uh, in our in our practice or in our city to any extent. Um, there's a couple of things that are really good to close with. I'll skip over, but um, that's for Dorio. Uh, how about um, does R reduce the comorbid um, conditions in terms of I guess incidence? Just antiretroviral therapy alone? Do you consider that? <clears throat> enough to decrease those, or are those going to continue along? No, I think I think the evidence that we have would suggest that comorbid conditions are more frequent and occur at a younger age, whether or not patients are on antiretroviral therapy. Right. So, in addition to lung cancer, colon cancer, what about Hodgkin's hepatocellular carcinoma, that type of thing, throat uh, cancers? Um, do you screen I'm, for those, or yeah, how do you? I, do I don't do any. I mean, there's there's no real screening for Hodgkin's disease that uh, I think most people would advocate, uh, other than a other than a good uh, mouth exam. There's no particular. Uh, radiologic or other screening that I do for head and neck cancer, but that is a good point because HPV infection is more prevalent. There's certainly been instances of people developing uh, throat cancer, uh, which it can be very problematic to treat. So we've got three minutes left and two questions. Um, the first one I think we're going to do kind of quick. What is the role of a routine annual physical regardless of um, 
their sort of general orientation of the insurance. In other words, do you consider one of the visits each year to be an annual physical? Is that how you divide it up with the nurse practitioner um, PA? One, one for all of my patients, generally one visit is. It has more to do with billing than it has to do with uh, anything else. I think there's I think there's actually a role for forgetting about HIV infection for a moment. I think there actually is a role for an annual visit or a visit that you're going to uh, really look at health maintenance issues and make sure you do appropriate parts of the physical exam and just have an opportunity to review the status of the patient's overall health. So I just thought of one other question. It seems like sleep apnea is very common, but way underdiagnosed. Uh, do you screen for that in some kind of way? or? How do you look for that? Um, I look for, I, I try to uh, make sure I ask the, most patients, many patients will come in and uh, with complaints that might be suspicious for sleep apnea, but I agree with you, it is underdiagnosed. And what I try to do is have a high index of suspicion uh, and make sure I ask the appropriate questions, uh, screening questions in patients that are at increased risk for it based upon their body happiness, et cetera. I'll save the last minute and 30 for you to comment on uh, two questions that basically ask the same thing. And the role of the ID trained physician versus internal medicine trained physician uh, in terms of doing primary care. Yeah. There, one of the questions says, I'm ID trained, I don't want to do any primary care. And other folks say, well, I'm ID trained and I kind of like doing primary care. So what's the answer? Um, the answer is your patients would like you to do primary care. Um, I can't, I, I really can't make a judgment on whether or not you want to do it. Um, patients want comprehensive care. They tend to bond with a single doctor or healthcare pr practitioner. And I think uh, their care is generally better assuming you work within your scope of knowledge in, in all areas. So I, I'm a strong believer that uh, basically it's more a matter of, you know, are you interested in it? Will you, are you willing to, do you have support system in place where you can learn what you don't know? And can you do it competently? And uh, there's no particular reason just why, I mean, it's mo both sides of the coin. There's no particular reason why generally trained physicians can't do uh, HIV management. And there's no reason why ID physicians can't do routine primary care. Great. And, and while you're here, I've got this pain in my elbow <laughs> that really, I mean, we can talk after. We're going to have to wait in line. Okay. Right. It hurts when I do this, so I won't I do that anymore. Don't do that. Exactly. Well, thanks so much, Harry. Okay. Great job. All right. Um, let me do a little housekeeping here. Save. Yeah. And that.